So we talked about the Puritans and at least or at least we talked about what was going on in England that gave rise to the Puritans. But I actually want to talk about the Puritans. Like we know we've we've basically we've been doing royal history, haven't we, for the last couple of weeks. We've talked about Elizabeth and uh, James and Charles and we talked about the war between Charles and the Parliament, at least very briefly. And what I want to do now is actually talk about the Puritans. We've been setting the stage for them, and now I want to actually talk about them. So um, 1560 to 1660, if you wanted to remember a date with regard to the Puritans, that's the date to remember because that is what is known as the Puritan Golden Age. Um, I do not know who came up with that term. Probably somebody out there could tell you who came up with that term. Uh, but that is just recognized as the Puritan Golden Age because it was this hundred-year window where Elizabeth becomes the queen and um, up until the time when Charles II returns. So in that window, you have Puritan ministry really at its, at its zenith. Um, you have this incredibly rich period of preaching, of family worshiped, of uh, unparalleled theological work that's taking place in England. The question is, who were the Puritans? The Puritans were English churchmen who sought to remove the corruptions of Rome from the practice and the polity of the Church of England. So in, if you remember, we, we talked about sort of the birth of the English church. And part of the reason we spent so much time talking about the birth of the church in England was we want, I wanted you to understand why there was something to purify in the first place, if I can put it that way. Puritan is a derogatory term. It was given to them as an insult. Um, now we use it in a descriptive way just to describe this period and the people in this period. But what was it that was there to purify? If I didn't tell you the English history, then you might not understand or I'd just be assuming that you understood what was going on. Remember... England is a Roman Catholic territory. Once Henry changes it into a Protestant church, it doesn't become Protestant overnight, and he never becomes Protestant. And then you have this kingdom that is sort of the, the, the reformers there are trying to move it in a reformed direction, but they, it's almost like stretching a rubber band, right? At some point, you, you're afraid the rubber band is going to break. You're afraid it's going to snap. And so all the time, Thomas Cranmer and those who are working for the Reformation have to wonder, are we stretching them too far? Is this more than people can handle? Is this more than the church can take? And there's this slowness to go all the way in the reforms and become fully reformed. And so what do they do? They hold on to some of what they think of as sort of a middle between Geneva and Rome. Maybe we don't have to go all the way Rome, but we, maybe we should keep some of these things because everybody's used to it. And so that's kind of the way that the English church has been reforming. But you have the Puritans who tended to look at these attempts at reforming the church by like Cranmer and his successors and – they see Cranmer and these guys doing what they think of as a political approach to deciding theology and deciding worship in the church. So they would, if they were going to pick on Cranmer, they would say, Cranmer, you just put your finger in the air and you feel where the wind is blowing and you keep listening to the wind that's in the air. And what you should be doing is looking at the New Testament. 
You should be looking at how the church is supposed to be run according to the New Testament. And I would think Cranmer and the people in the English church are going, we should be realistic, right? That's what they would say. We should be realistic about what we expect from people. We should expect that they're still going to want to kneel for communion, that they should be used to doing the sign of the cross and these other things that we're going to talk about in a little bit. We should be used to them saying, hey, look, the preacher needs to be set apart in a different way. He needs to be treated like a priest. All of these are things that the English people would say just realistically, even if we agreed with you and we thought the church should go full Geneva, these people just can't handle it. And so we want to do something that sort of walks the line between the Reformation and Rome. And so the Puritans said, no, you shouldn't do this. You should hold, the, hold what you're doing up to the standard of God's word and not what is expedient, not what is moderate. And so you could see why the Puritans would be such an irritant to the Church of England. <laughs> because they're trying to do something here. And part of what they're trying to do is get everybody on board And these people over here keep wanting you to go to the Bible to show them what you're going to be including in worship. That would be really irritating if your goal was not to have biblical worship, but to have moderate worship. So the the Puritans had six main complaints. I'm going to just list them here for you to see. Um, This is probably a, a smaller list. There are plenty more things that we could add to the list. But... I'm going to just go through some of these. The first chief complaint of the Puritans was they asked King James, especially in their request to him, they asked him to enforce Sabbatarianism society wide. Um, they, they said, hey, look, James, you and I, we all know that the fourth commandment is there, that it's real and that society should be grinding to a halt on Sundays. We should not be out Uh, buying and selling we should not be out having organized games Um, we should be going to church and engaging in worship on the lord's day and king james responded to them and he responded to them with something that was called a declaration of sports sometimes it's called the book of sports and in the book of sports king james uh, commended some suitable pastimes for sundays um, some things like Morris dancing. Do you guys know what Morris dancing is? No. Yes. I didn't know what Morris dancing was. So the sticks and the hats. Yeah, like I didn't know what Morris dancing was. And then I was talking to John Elliott and he was like, here, this is Morris dancing. And he sent me a YouTube video and I couldn't believe that people did this. So I don't even know how to describe it. Somebody, what? Uh, I, I don't even, not a it's a Sunday, man. Come on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a good out, right? That's a very good out. <laughs> Somebody want to describe what Morris dancing is? Uh, I, I mean, sorry, I looked up on Wikipedia since I was curious. It says, Morris dancing is a form of English folk dancing. It is based on rhythmic stepping and the execution of choreographed figures by a group of dancers using wearing belt pads on their shins. Yeah, so there were, there were bells on their feet and uh, carry poles and dance. and uh, It's quite a sight. I, I had, I, anyway, don't, don't look it up right now. But, uh, <laughs> um, but other, other pastimes that James published in the book that were suitable would be like maypoles. Actually, I don't know what maypoles are either. Um, archery. I, I know what that is. We've got a, that's our school mascot. 
Um, leaping. I like that. Leaping is a pastime that was suitable for Sundays. Vaulting and other permissible sports. Just kind of left it open there, permissible sports. Now, the thing that James specified in the book of sports was that only people who could do those things were those who first attended church. Here's the thing. I was never enforced. And so what, in that, what, it, what basically ended up happening was by publishing this, this book of sports, James was sanctioning what ended up being organized sports on Sundays, which ended up pulling people away from church. Because, you know, think about it today. Um, if you've had kids that are in sports, you probably know the pull of organized sports on Sundays. Um, you have probably seen the ball fields around the area and how they fill up on Sundays because it's a, it's a day where people aren't doing their other stuff, right? It's a perfect day in theory to do that sort of thing, sort of organized sports. Well, if you're going to drive to a destination that is far from home and you're going to be participating in these things, often it doesn't end up being a casual thing where you walk into your backyard and you just hit a ball around or something like that. It ends up being sort of like organized sports leagues. We're going to take this really seriously. If we're going to play, then we're going to take it seriously. And so what happened was not only were people just drawn away from church on Sundays, but all of commercial life was very active because these very the, – the, the commerce of society sort of depends upon the movement and actions and of people. And so when people are out and about, it makes sense for businesses to be open and for them to be serving those folks. And the Puritans were deeply distressed. They actually, by asking James to enforce Sabbatarianism, actually made it worse. They made it worse because now people would go out and say, it says in the book of games that we can go and do these things on Sundays. Um, and so church attendance would fall off because they never enforced – You know, they wouldn't go around and say, hey, were you at church? You know – I don't know. <laughs> I was going to say a position <laughs> for a sports game, but I don't know what a position in a, an English sports in the 1500s would look like. Um, you know, see some guy playing the football center and asking him if he was in church first, you know. Um, no one does that at the Super Bowl. Um, yeah, the problem with, with, with uh, these, of course, was that they often require the attention of people for the whole day. It doesn't require the attention of people just for a part of the day. But it takes time to plan these things, to execute these things. There are people who, if they're going to set up these games, they're going to be working in the lead up to those things. So you end up just having people being very busy on Sundays. And so the Puritans did not oppose rest. They did not oppose relaxation. They did not oppose simple recreations. But they they were very opposed to especially organized sports that kept people away from the worship of God. And so that was one one of the big complaints of the Puritans. Just that the fact that Sabbatarianism wasn't enforced and the king was no help with that. Um, they also opposed the, the – uh, and by the way, what I'm doing here is I'm actually putting the uh, – describing the Puritans in negative terms, which I really regret. But we're going to speak positively of their contributions in just a bit. But these are the things that they were opposed to and this is how they got the name Puritan to begin with. The second thing that they were opposed to – actually, I put down the Book of Common Prayer – I passed that around earlier, and I commended Thomas Cranmer's colleagues to you all. Um, But the Book of Common Prayer, they did not, strictly speaking, have a problem with. There's nothing in the Book of Common Prayer that I I think that the Puritans would have pointed to and said, look at this wickedness, look at this evil. But what they did oppose was the imposition of it on them 
and on churches and on a specific lectionary for preaching. So if you look at the Book of Common Prayer, it'll tell you which Sundays you should, what texts you should preach on on certain days. It would tell you what prayers that you should pray on certain days. It, it was very much followed, a church calendar. Um, all of these things, the Puritans said, we're willing to do these things when we want to, but our problem is when you make us do it, and then you fine us or throw us in prison because we don't use it. And so that was the problem that the Puritans had. So they don't have a problem with the Book of Common Prayer. They have a problem with requiring it of them. So how do they respond to the Book of Common Prayer? So they're required to use it in their, in their churches, and they would. But then groups of clergy would actually organize themselves into voluntary societies and they actually place themselves under a Geneva style of discipline. Because remember, what happened during the time of, of Bloody Mary? A lot of them end up going to Geneva. And a lot of them end up seeing what church is like in Geneva. And they come back to England and they want more of that. And so they are under a bishop. And so instead they would voluntarily sort of create their own, we would call them presbyteries. And so they have presbyteries, functionally speaking, they have Presbyterianism. A lot of them do. And so they would get together. They would sometimes ignore the bishop. And instead, they would submit themselves to other ministers and other elders in a way that is functionally Presbyterian. Puritans would also hold meetings that they called prophesyings. So, you know, they would be frustrated, perhaps. They would be frustrated that they're required to use the Book of Common Prayer. They would have their worship service that follows the the BCP. But then they would have their own meeting during the week. And And that meeting would be clergy and lay people on weekdays. They would get together for Bible study, for discussion, and prayer. And these began to grow in emphasis. And since they saw that their worship as being persecuted, some of them saw the prophesyings as the real meetings of the church. So they would meet during the week and they would say, okay, on Sundays we have to do things a certain way. But when we meet during the week, we're going to do things properly the way the word of God says. Which is interesting that that's, how, that's what they had to do because as far as they were concerned, they were under persecution. Um, the queen hated these meetings. When Elizabeth, Elizabeth was told about these meetings, she hated them. In 1577, she sent a letter to all the bishops, all the bishops, and she forbid them. But a lot of the bishops actually refused to cooperate with this letter. Um, I was able to find that information. I did not find out what that looked like. I did not find out if that looked like Elizabeth removing the bishops or um, you know, how much work she's willing to go to to get them removed. Somebody who's a historian of the English church could probably tell me more. Um, um, the next thing that they're opposed to was priestly garb. Um, J.I. Packer has a book called The Heritage of Anglican Theology. J.I. Packer was Anglican. Did you guys know that? Um, actually, who knows who J.I. Packer is? I should start there. <laughs> um, he was very influential for me. He was, the first, he was the first Christian writer that I really read after becoming a Christian. Um, his book, Knowing God, was really important to me. And I still think new Christians should read Knowing God. Um, but in that book, he talks about this. And I'm just going to read what he says because he knew more, knows more about this than me. He says, one of the problems the Puritans had was that the minister leading public worship was required to wear a kind of white tent called a surplice. 
I'm saying it. I think it's pronounced surplus, but I don't. I think that's confusing. If you want to know how to spell it, it's S U R P L I C E. Anglican clergy still wear the surplice. And the argument for doing so is that it is a kind of uniform, like a police or military uniform, that helps worshipers remember that the minister belongs to a category of Christians who have been set apart to lead worship and shepherd the congregation. In other words, attention is being called to the man's public identity, thus diverting attention from any personal oddities he might have in his dress. That was the defense of the surplice under Elizabeth, and it is the defense of the surplice today. Some people think is a perfectly reasonable defense. Others do not. Abolish the surplus, said the Puritans. They thought of it as a Romish rag, suggesting that the priest is a holier person and nearer to God than the rest of us, which would be utterly wrong. In its place, the Puritans preferred the simple Geneva gown. So you guys might actually see me preaching in the Geneva gown and think, oh, wow, that's, that's meant to separate him. But in history... Uh, it was actually not meant to, to separate me or make the preacher look like they were somebody who was holier. Um, it was meant to be an academic gown. Uh, the Geneva gown was just an academic robe that was meant to make someone un- understood as an interpreter of a text. Uh, somebody who is ministerial in their authority. In other words, all they're really doing is taking what's been said and done and bringing it to you and showing it to you. Uh. Which is very different than a priest who intercedes for you and stands between you and God. And so perhaps in our own day that sort of has, been, has lost its meaning. But if someone ever asks me, like, why would you defend wearing a Geneva gown? Uh, my, answer, my answer is, A, so you don't worry about what I'm wearing. Um, <laughs> maybe it's more so I don't worry about what I'm wearing. Uh, so you don't worry about what I'm wearing. And also because... I, as a personality, am not important. God and his word are what matter. And so I want you focusing on the word of God preached, not on me as, a, as an individual. Yeah. I mean, oh, so that's why I was like kind of confused. Well, I mean, that's why I was like, thought it was almost like similar to a priestly gown. Yeah, so the priestly gown, uh, you know, it conveys something different. This person stands between me and God, um, which is a very different message to send. Um, and again, like I've, I've pointed this out, it's why I stand behind the table, not in front of the table. Right, because God is the one who's feeding you from His Word and from the Lord's Supper, not me. It's not not me doing it whatsoever. I mean, that's what I'm just saying. It looked a little bit so similar to that. So I'm like, I did not realize that. Yeah, yeah. That's the that's the thinking anyway. Um, it's actually meant to downplay the individuality of the individual. So I still like some of the argument here. I think it's interesting that they didn't think the Geneva gown did that sufficiently, though. That's interesting. Um, so item number four here. This was new to me. Sometimes I'm doing homework in this class and I'm getting ready and I'm preparing and you're reading all about the things that, the, that the, were important to the Puritans and all the people that I love who love the Puritans leave this out. I think it's because it's not a very hot topic for us today. Um, that's the issue of wedding rings. If you're back there, I'm sure you can't read that from back there unless you have just great eyes because also you have my bad handwriting to contend with. Um, For the Puritans, wedding rings were a problem. Uh, They were a problem because what what would a wedding ring have meant in Rome, in a Roman Catholic church? What is is marriage in the Catholic church, Roman Catholic church? Marriage is a sacrament in the Roman Catholic church. And so in a way, and and it is not a sacrament in scripture, and it's not a sacrament uh, in certainly any other churches, just in the Roman Catholic church. And 
they were afraid that the wedding ring reinforced this idea of there being a sacrament. Because now you aren't just saying vows, but you're showing it with a sign and a seal of your love. And so for the Puritans, they said, you need to get rid of the practice of the wedding ring. So the the reason this is new to me was I thought that was just an Anabaptist thing. I thought it was just the Anabaptists and the Quakers who had issues with the sign and the idea of a sign being given uh, in marriage vows. Turns out the Puritans felt the same way. What I don't know is if they all did. I don't know if it was to a man. I don't know if, you know, I, we're going to talk about this in a minute, but for the Puritans, they aren't uniform. Across the board, they're not all carbon copies of each other. And so I don't know what the percentage of the Puritans who really opposed to the wedding ring were. But um, anyway, I find that my Quaker grandmother, Doris, may have been more Puritan than I realized. So I'm going to feel kind of happy about that. Yeah. Weren't some of the Puritans opposed to church weddings as well? Because they saw that it's not the church's job, it was a civil thing as opposed to the church. If that is part of the Puritan complaint, it was not in my reading and I didn't come across it. That doesn't mean that it wouldn't have been. So, uh, fair question, and I don't know the answer. But anyone else who wants to say so can, uh, would be very welcome to give an answer. Um, they were opposed to the sign of the cross being put on a child's head in baptism. So, in an English church, if a child gets baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not only would they pour the water on the head of the child, but they would also mark their forehead with a sign of the cross. One of the things that infant baptism had, um, actually all baptisms had in the early church and in the medieval ages was this aspect to it that began to develop where it's not just about giving the sign and the seal of the covenant, but where it's also about exorcism. There's an element of exorcism to the baptism. So, you know, if you think about it, the uh, original sin is a problem. And so part of what they, they understood, began to understand in time, was that receiving baptism is a way of purging someone of original sin. And so they would put salt in the water, and the salt in the water was meant to be symbolic of driving out demons. It was meant to be uh, sort of an aspect of exorcism. And so in the English church, they would also put the sign of the cross on the forehead of the child and the whole idea here is this child is not only marked out as holy, but there is some exorcism type element to it in the reason why they would use the sign of the cross. Eric? Yeah, so I was listening to a podcast called Cultish, and um, that practice is making a resurgence. I had never even heard of that before, but yeah, it was a whole you know, hour-long um, podcast about that specific practice. Of using salt and doing exorcism? Yeah. Well, and, and remember, um, there are uh, in Roman Catholic uh, baptism, uh, there is this question, isn't there? Uh, do you renounce Satan? You remember that that question that gets asked? Um, that renunciation of Satan is meant to be understood as something that someone who has the has a demonic presence could not say. So. There, there are aspects of this still, and I do not know which churches use those the, that wording when they're when they're baptizing someone. So, uh, yeah, what's that? You don't want to know which ones. <laughs> um, but the, but so they basically 
they, the Puritans' argument was, look, God gave a sign that already is supposed to be included, and the sign is water. There's no need to add to it. He didn't tell us to make the sign of a cross. Um, he basic, they basically argued, look, this is strange fire. You guys know where the phrase strange fire comes from? Um, we're going to talk about that when we get to the next subject, when we start talking about the regular principle of worship and how our worship should be structured. We're going to get away from the historical conversation and start talking about what we should do. Um, but, but that's very much what they regarded it as. They say, this sign of the cross is strange fire. We're adding to what God has given us. And God says to use water. He doesn't say to make a sign. He doesn't say to add salt to it. He doesn't say to do any of these other things. He says, just use water. Um, they opposed kneeling to receive communion. Now, we've talked, on th- talked about this a couple of times. We talked about it when we discussed the black rubric. Who remembers what the black rubric was? It was into the Book of Common Prayer, something that John Knox got them to add. And it was the passage where they explained that we are kneeling for the Lord's Supper, but it is not because it's the body and blood of Jesus. Um, so John Knox said, I'll support this Book of Common Prayer if you add this in, and they did it. And the problem was the Puritans were not satisfied with the black rubric. Also, once Elizabeth comes to power, she has the black rubric, rubric removed. So the black rubric is no longer there. And so they feel their consciences are bound. When they're told that they must kneel to receive communion, their argument was, we are being, again, required to do something that Jesus didn't require. And second of all, we are being required to exalt the host. In other words, we're, we're being called to exalt the body and the blood of Jesus. And we don't believe the body and blood of Jesus are there. But even if they were, it would be wrong for us to make idols out of them. And so they were opposed to it for, I think, very understandable reasons. Um, they thought, even, even if the Church of England specifies that this is not the body and blood of Jesus physically, um, we are feeding superstition when we allow this to take place, and certainly when we require it in the Book of Common Prayer. So these are the 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 uh, the issues at least some of the issues that the puritans had issues with that they wanted to see handled in the church because they thought if if you could fix these things then you would be you would be seeing a truly reformed church in england and that's what they yearned for the Pur- the name puritan was a derisive name given by party men within the church of england Puritans did not use this term for themselves. They saw themselves as part of the church. They saw themselves as part of the English church. They were, though, seen as complainers. They were seen as pests. They were seen as sticklers. Um, Far too ideological to be tolerated by those who were seeking broad consensus. Again, you know, they're trying to look for a moderate church. And here, these guys over there, they want them to become Genevans. And um, they wanted scriptural reforms. What they wanted was they wanted to oppose what they saw as syncretism. Do you guys know what syncretism is, that, that phrase? This idea of taking two religious systems and sort of mashing them together. And they said, what we've got in England right now is syncretism. We're mixing uh, Protestant worship with Roman Catholicism. And it's not biblical. And so that was the Puritans. They saw themselves as being part of the church and they saw themselves as seeking reform in the church. Now, here's what happens for the, for the Puritans. Their attempts at reform fall on deaf ears. 
Um, they realize they're not making progress. They realize that they are sort of marginalized and forgotten. And so a group of them depart on a ship called the Mayflower that leaves from Plymouth, England on September 6th, 1620. So in the middle of the Puritan Golden Age, a group of them say, you know, this may be the Puritan Golden Age, but they start to realize they're never going to own society. They're never going to decide what, you know, what things are supposed to be like. And so they go to the New World. They land in Plymouth, Massachusetts. They drew up a covenant to form a political and religious society under the sort of discipline and worship they yearned for when they were in England. Um, but that's another story. <laughs> we start telling the story of uh, American Presbyterianism at this point if we get there. Technically, those in New England then were not Puritans because Puritans were those who sought to reform the Church of England. And in New England, they are their own church. They aren't reforming the Church of England any longer. And so, you know, we think of somebody like Jonathan Edwards, and sometimes I will call him a Puritan. Um, really, he is an inheritor of the Puritans. He's part of the Puritan heritage. But Jonathan Edwards is, he's an American theologian. That's what he is. He's not a Puritan. Yeah. What did the what did ministers in New England identify as? Yeah. Uh, they would identify themselves as Christian ministers. They would still have denominations they belonged to. There were still Presbyterians in New England. There were um, nonconformist or not nonconformists. There were uh, Congregationalists in New England. Edwards was a Congregationalist, but at one point after he got fired. He wrote to a Presbyterian uh, presbytery and said, you know, I really love Presbyterianism, actually, and I would love to become a Presbyterian if I got a Presbyterian call. So I just love that. I'm glad that that exists, that that document exists somewhere. <laughs> just the, Even though Edwards was not, it was a congregational minister, he was still a Presbyterian at heart, I guess. Yeah. There was a difference, too, between those who left and went to Plymouth and then those that came <coughs> Settled Boston and Salem. So Plymouth, those were separatists. Mm-hmm. And they, because they, they were just trying to put it all behind. But those, yep. those that came later were of a more Puritan vein, those that settled Boston, Salem, more that area. The people who. They call me was different than those who settled Plymouth. Yeah, they're not monolithic. <laughs> In fact, you start to get sort of a hodgepodge in America really quickly. It's mm-hmm. not like um, New England becomes a Puritan colony of some kind. You know, very, very individualized. Yeah. So um, what was the theology of the Puritans? We have five minutes. I'll do it. Because I'm not going to go that deep because this is a worship series. So we're not we're I'm trying to stay on the subject of worship as much as I can. Um, Puritan theology was solidly anchored in the Reformed tradition. The way you saw it from Luther, Calvin. And in many respects, even even Zwingli, Um, they were Calvinists through and through. They believed strongly in the sovereignty of God. They believed strongly in the doctrines of election and predestination. Um, Technically, Puritanism is a branch of Anglicanism. It never actually split off so much as resisted the reforms of Anglicanism whenever they conflicted with scripture. What you found in England generally was... The, the, the people who were really in favor of an English church and opposed to Puritanism tended to come from and, and what you think of as an Arminian direction. 
or at least they were friendly to Arminianism. And if you don't know that phrase, I'm super sorry. I don't have time to explain it, but we can talk afterwards. Um, but the Puritans themselves were solidly Calvinistic. They had theological bellies of steel. Um, they, could handle, they could handle something like predestination. Um, if you want to know what Puritan theology is, the best thing you can look at, and I should have brought it out, is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Because the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and the Larger Catechism are almost like a frozen-in-time picture of the best theological work that the best minds in England could do at what I think was England's theological peak. Because you had all of these people who had been on the continent, you had all these people who had the freedom to study, and you had um, all of the work that they were doing at the Westminster Assembly. Um, I think it would be wrong for me to start talking about the Westminster Assembly right now, so I'm just going to sate your appetite by saying when we come back um, we'll talk about the Westminster Assembly and especially what they had to say about worship and I want to I look at what we do. See this stuff down here? We're not going to do it today because I don't have time. <laughs> so we'll talk about this part of things later um, but, but uh, yeah, we, um, I think it would be a mistake for me to go too far into that. Any questions? Any stuff you guys want to say? We do have five minutes. Just know that you'll probably get a I don't know from me. Uh, only one. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking about worship and the Puritans. Uh, it, it might be like a seventh complaint, but they they were like a, they don't like the idea of using musical instruments to worship God. So in the in the Anglican Church, they would use instruments. They would use organs. Uh, Puritans tended to not be interested in having musical instruments in worship. We will talk about that. Actually, we're going to have a. Um, Discussion about whether or not it's right to use instruments or not in worship because that's an issue that lots of people uh, differ on or at least within Presbyterianism differ on. Um, so we will talk about that for sure. But I'm pro-instrument, just so you guys know. <laughs> no surprises at the last second. Like, I've, while you, <laughs> Before you guys got here today, I unplugged the organ and poured salt in it or something. <laughs> It's not me. <laughs> anyway, anything else before we go? Uh, let me pray for us. Mm-hmm. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those who went before us, God. We especially remember those who, even though it wasn't popular and even though it was frustrating to many, we thank you for our uh, fathers and mothers who came before us in the faith, especially uh, in the Church of England, Lord, those who those who did seek to see your church reformed according to scripture. Um, it's sad to think that so many of, the, uh, of these concerns were often written off as extremism, Lord, when in fact all they were really asking was, what did the scripture say? And I pray that we would be guided by that question as well, that, that if we ever find a controversial issue or a controversial question, especially something that, that might divide us, even in this church, I pray that we would be guided by the question, what did the scripture say? Uh, Would you help us to be guided by your word and not by our own imaginations or our own sense of what is expedient? We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.